We're going to jump back in and head into our teaching time um, this morning. So if I have not get a chance to meet you, my name is Wally. Uh, I am, uh, have the honor and privilege of being the teaching pastor for Walker Harbor, and I am thrilled that you are here this morning, uh, thrilled that we can spend this time together, and certainly that we can offer a blessing uh, for our kids, for sure, and teachers and the like. So um, what, a, what a gift. And, um, and then, then we can gather as the body, as, as the church, and lean in and dig into uh, to the text now as we get to do the scriptures. And so we're going to do so. We have been, for all of 2022, we actually started at what is uh, known as the Advent season of 2021, we began uh, walking through uh, what is known as the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus according to a young Jewish man named Matthew. So we often, maybe you hear the gospel of Matthew, but it's the gospel, it's the good news of Jesus' life told by a guy named Matthew. Uh, so the biography, one of four of Jesus' life by this young Jewish man, Matthew. And we've been walking through, in some ways, verse by verse, certainly story by story, but we're going through it. We will wrap sometime, either at the end of this year or it's likely the beginning of 2023, as we've been going through. But what we have been doing is there, there are themes throughout Matthew's writing. He's doing a lot of work in, in a short letter, if you will, and there are themes throughout the letter, and we've been breaking then it into smaller kind of sub-series, smaller series that work within this, um, these themes. And for the last several weeks, last five weeks, we have uh, landed on and spent time with the question, is the faith journey, essentially, is our faith journey up and to the right? This phrasing is, does it, you know, in walking with Jesus, in following God, does this faith journey just move up and to the right? And I know for most people, many people, in some way, they, they would probably react and say, well, of course not. They might say that. They might say, of course not. Yet, simultaneously, one of the most common things I hear people say uh, in times of struggle or difficulty is, why is this happening to me? I'm trying to do good or be good. I'm trying to follow God. Why would I be experiencing struggle or difficulty or pain? Why would God allow this to happen might be how it's said. Why is it happening to me? Why me and not, you know, those people? And those people could be people who don't give a rip about God. Uh, they've said so. People who are, you know, they do bad things. So why me, not them? And so there is this struggle that even though we might think, well, of course we don't think it's up and to the right, but we struggle in times of difficulty, but, but shouldn't it be up and to the right. So we spent time with that. And if you're like, wow, that sounds interesting, <laughs> you're newer or you haven't um, been around a little bit, um, you can jump into the podcast, lean into that. We uh, walked through that for five weeks. We kind of walked through stories that essentially centered around that question. But uh, we are now turning to a new mini-series because we're looking at a whole different set of questions that are going to come up in the text. So we're moving into a new mini-series that we're going to look at over the next four weeks. And um, I think 
this will be really, really helpful. We're looking at these questions and we're calling this mini-series Honest Questions People Ask. Really creative title um, that just honest questions people ask. We're going to look into things, questions on forgiveness. Uh, what is it that you want? Questions that are going to be posed to Jesus on forgiveness. What is it that you want? Uh, how, what must I do to get eternal life? will be a question posed to Jesus. What must I do to get eternal life? And the question for this morning is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or what is greatness in the kingdom of heaven? What is greatness? Who is great? Who is the greatest? So this is going to be a question we're going to lean into. And each of these questions have been brought in the text to Jesus, and we'll dig into them. And maybe, like me, you are grateful for these questions in the text and that will lean into them because maybe, like me, you grew up in a church where actually questions, asking questions was frowned upon. You can't ask questions in church. You can't ask questions about church, Bible, whatever, God, because that shows a lack of faith, a weak faith, or Maybe it's um, a lack of respect or reverence for God, so you can't ask questions, which I find to be kind of odd in response to a faith centered on the person of Jesus, being that Jesus lived within the context and structure of a rabbi-student context. This is how he lived, Jesus, as a rabbi with students, and a whole rabbinic system is based on questions. Question, 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 questions. And this is how Jesus lived. So the way in which a student showed they knew the scriptures was to be able to respond to questions by asking further questions about the text. So here's how you would uh, display that you knew the text well. You're asked, your rabbi asks you a question about the scriptures. You wouldn't say, oh, I know the answer. You would say, hmm, what is it that Isaiah, the prophet, talked about, about this? And so you wouldn't respond with, I know the answer. You would instead, instead ask your rabbi a question that would send them to the text being referenced that you show, I know where this is coming from. Or you might ask a question saying, I know where this is heading. So you would ask them a question around where the text is moving or where the question is. Are you with me? But the whole point was, you show what you know, not by, I just have the answer, I memorized it. Instead, I know where it came from, I know what's going on, I know where it's heading, and so I'll put that back to you. I know where this is leading. But we live in a society that prefers bullet points, brevity, TikTok reels, so questions feel a bit convoluted and weighty, which I would argue is part of the point. The meaning is often found in the wrestling. Answers are not, for our teachers, found filling in the proper multiple choice bubble, but through saturating oneself in the search and the study. Less like, oh great, you got all the right dots filled in, but do you know the content? Do you know it? So rather than pride and being a know-it-all, I can give all the right answers, one of the most important characteristics of the kingdom of heaven 
Write it down, carry it with you in your pocket so that you can pull it out from time to time is humility. Humility, which guides us into today's text, the search and study. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. I'd like to say a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to sink into the scriptures. Gracious God, we bless you for right here, right now, this space that we can gather, we can listen with not just our ears, but our hearts and our minds. Speak as you do, God, that we would listen, that we have hearts to understand what you are saying and leading and guiding, and that we might respond to that, both corporately as a community and individually. So God, as the psalmist said, may the posture and meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you. And may your church, your body, be built up, strengthened, encouraged, and challenged to follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, or Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, Peter replied. Now, once again, context, where are we in the tax? So where are we geography-wise? We're going to start there. We're in a, a small fishing village called Capernaum, or Kafar Nahum is how it would be pronounced. So you get your bearing in Israel when you're in the Galilee region, more northern part. Of Israel, we're on the north, kind of west side of the Sea of Galilee or Lake of Galilee, Capernaum here, small fishing village. Not very many people in the first century, but this is where we're located, and this is really important in this area. So, what we know is the vast majority of the audience in this story are Orthodox Jewish people, so they know their scriptures. They know the text, and they're anticipating, seeking, and hunger, hungering for the Messiah to come, the Savior to come, and remove the boot of the Roman Empire off of them, and when the divine resides with them, when the divine comes to be with them, this would also mean the crushing of the burden of taxes and the temple system will be rendered obsolete. We don't need this. God is with us now, so that would go away. This is the audience in which this story takes place. So we move on in the text. When Peter came into the house where Jesus was, Jesus was the first to speak. So what do you think, Simon? That's his other name. Uh, Jesus named him Peter. Uh, he asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? Real quick pause. What did Jesus do there? Did he lecture Peter? Did he scold Peter? Did he give Peter a direct response? What did he do? Questions. Hey, Pete, I got a question for you. Or Simon. Uh, and then Peter responds with, from others, Peter answered. Then, if that's the case, Peter, the children are exempt. Jesus said to him, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake 
and throw out your line. Peter came, uh, he was a fisherman when Jesus called him, so he left his fishing business to follow Jesus. Throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. And he would ever read this story and go, "Uh uh-huh, sure. And you just go, that's clear, that's fine, that's great. Go fishing, find a fish, open the fish's mouth, there'll be a coin in it. And it seems like a very uh, fantastical kind of story, right? Look at Jesus perform his magic trick miracle here, and there's a coin, and that's how interesting. I wonder if there's more going on. I find this story just brilliant and fascinating because it's going to show the fire of a prophet in Jesus, and it's going to show the playfulness of Jesus within it, highlighting his humanity. First, we have to know this temple tax referred to has its roots in the Exodus story and in the book of Exodus. Whenever you read that a census, because we're going to read in the story, there's a census was taken, it's usually a precursor to war or increased taxes. Take a census so we know how many people to tax or how many people we can have in our military. That's usually, so it actually was a negative thing. They go, oh no, if we're doing a census, either taxes are being raised or we feel like we have to go to war. These are not positive things. So the purpose, though, of this specific tax when it was originally done was in order to, uh, it was really important for us to understand, so we'll dig into that. We'll go to Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 through 14, so we'll see how this unfolds. Then the Lord said to Moses, the prophet, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, that's the name of this tax, which weighs uh, 20 geras. Then the half shekel is an offering to the Lord. All who cross over, those circle this, 20 years old or more, are to give an offering to the Lord. This is what is put in place then. This offering to God, though, here's the thing, was meant to be a one-time offering used for the construction of the tabernacle. That's what they were going to use the money for to construct the tabernacle in the Hebrew Scriptures. But the priests... What they did, imagine this. The priests go, okay, this was spoken. This was given to us. It was supposed to be a one-time tax to build their tabernacle. The priests say, we should take this annually. We're going to take what, what we believe God has said to us, and rather than let it be what it's for, we're going to put it in cement and keep doing it over and over again. I can't imagine that happening. But they did. And so what will end up happening is they will then take it annually and they'll carry it over to the maintenance of the temple once the first temple is built. Then that temple will be destroyed. And then the second temple, as it's understood, will be rebuilt and then really rebuilt up by Herod the Great heading into the time of Jesus. And this tax was then used to do things to the temple. But specifically, this is what's interesting. The priest said all of this excess, because this revenue we bring in is a lot, and it actually is more than we need, and we're going to build a golden vine, think grapevine, a golden vine around the entrance to the sanctuary in the temple. And we're going to build it up, and 
we're going to take it annually, which is abusing this tax, just so we're clear on this, and they're going to construct this golden vine. So here's a picture. It's not great, but it's Sanctuary Temple, and they built this golden vine up in, in doing this, and then what happened is a number of Jewish sources record how this offering was leveraged as a source of status. Because the golden vine adorned the entrance to the sanctuary around these pillars, but people could give money above and beyond the tax, which was forbidden, right? It, it, well, actually, if you read verse 15 in Exodus, where we were going, it'll say, uh, if you're poor, make sure you don't pay less than this. Please give the proper amount. If you're rich, do not give more. Guess what? Then they say, hey, you know what? The priests say, if you want to give a free will offering, you can give a free will offering, and what we'll do is we'll make a golden leaf, a berry, or a cluster of grapes, and we'll put it on there on behalf of your free will offering, which only happened back then. Are you with me? This is fascinating. And then the priests hung it on there, and they did this. So then they have this vine, which is about status. Oh, yeah, I have grapes. You go to the temple. When you go to the temple each year, and you go, hey, my grapes are on there. I did that. And so they do this. Now, here's what's fascinating. This very well likely could be Jesus alluding to this in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 1, when he says this, I am the true vine. And that word true in the Greek means genuine, beyond just name, beyond symbol, I am the true vine. Because you know, around the tabernacle, or around the, the entrance to the sanctuary, please. That might get you in trouble. So then, uh, quick, interesting aside, but I do think it's an interesting aside, but this is an aside on empire. After the second temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 CE, common era, so about 40 years after the time of Jesus, the temple is destroyed, Rome will quickly replace the temple tax with what is known as Fiscus Ludiacus, which required, that's the name of the tax that Rome did, required Jews to support the temple of Jupiter Capitolina in Rome. So they just took the tax and say, oh no, keep paying it, and we're going to take that money now and we're going to give it to, to Rome. But since you're doing it, we'll just grab it, and some people will just go, oh, apparently we just keep paying the tax, and that only happens in the ancient world. Now then, several Jewish groups refuse to pay this, uh, uh, contribute to this tax annually. They're saying, we're not doing this. This isn't the way it's supposed to be, which led tax collectors to go to Peter and say, what's your rabbi's position on this? What's your teacher's position on this? Will he pay? Jesus' response here may seem like a small point, but it's actually quite significant in showing his brilliance and strategic nature. He knew that this tax was being abused and misused by the Jewish priests and teachers of the law, yet Jesus refuses to address it here. But he will in a few chapters, which we're going to get to. He's going to address these broken issues but this gives us helpful insights to better understanding the context and ways of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. First, Jesus finds this tax to be rubbish based on how it is being used. The word extortion fits here. But this story is taking place where? Where did we say this was taking place? Capernaum, small fishing village with just these people trying to collect the tax. Jesus is like, not the place, 
not the time, but I know we're going to make a statement about this and call this out in a few chapters when he's in Jerusalem, in the temple itself. What story do some of us maybe remember, recall? Anybody remember a story about Jesus doing what in the temple? Yeah, flipping some tables over and saying this system is corrupt, it's broken, you're extorting, you're not doing things properly. Oh, now is the place and now is the time in which you go and say, no way, no more, not happening. We'll get there though. So that's just, a, we'll get there in, in, in a bit. Not today. Um, but for now, Jesus is like, well, let's not stir up the temple officials in Rome. So he plays nice. That's what's going on here. Instead, Jesus asked Peter to do something kind of interesting. Go fishing, then take the first fish, pull it out, there will be a coin in its mouth, and this will pay the, pay the proper amount for Peter and Jesus. But in studying this, only, by the way, this story is only found in Matthew's gospel, many scholars highlight that we are not told whether or not Peter actually goes and does this. That doesn't happen in the text. And our friend... New Testament scholar, world-renowned scholar, N.T. Wright, gets at it like this, and he tells us why. Uh, next slide. Uh, NT, oh, this, this picture, um, this is pretty great because this is a painting. This, to me, just shows kind of like how we get fantastical about this. We have white, blonde-haired Jesus in his white bathrobe and blue sash. Um, okay, we'll come back to the picture because it'll make more sense after this. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, I have guessed that what? Oh, no, we'll go back. That's not where we want to be yet. Um, I'll, I'll just read it, and I'm probably out of order. N.T. Wright says this, we are left to speculate whether he, Jesus, really, or sorry, Peter, did go and do this thing, pull it out, or whether this was some kind of private joke, a way of telling Peter, catch a fish and sell it to pay the tax. Whatever we think about that, the tone of this story implies that for Jesus, this was a way of making light of the whole system, maybe even making fun of it. Oh, they want temple money, do they? Well, why don't you go fishing? I'm sure whatever you find will be good enough for them. This is important. It was a playful way for not just handing over money, but also not aggressively confronting the system outright. It was a way of biding time. He's biding time until later. Very much on par with Jesus using parables to critique systems and stilted postures that pose as the gospel. Now, it's easy to assume Jesus was doing another fun party trick, as in this picture, the glowy, floaty, esoteric guy found in cheesy paintings, uh, with old, bald, little bit of gray hair Peter pulling a coin out of his mouth, which there is, like, what? Um, but the whole thing is, that's not the point of the story. The story is to attest to, it's not Jesus is a good but very creative citizen. No. Rather, we find Jesus waiting for a better time, better place, temple in Jerusalem, than to confront the broken, abusive systems. He is modeling the subversive way of the kingdom of heaven. And one more point, which is an important point on this little story. This story is our best clue to get at the age of Peter, approximately, and the disciples. Are you with me? Because Jesus says, you'll have enough to pay the tax for me and you, Peter. And it is written in Exodus 20, what we read. Who pays the tax? People who are 20 years old and older. 
which then he's saying, Pete, you and I are the only ones old enough to pay the tax, which makes the rest of the 11 disciples less than 20 years old, correct? Fascinating, which is what many scholars say. Teenagers, likely, makes sense. But noting also that Peter is the only disciple that we're aware of that is married. So he is probably, and rabbis typically had a lead disciple, which would be Peter, as in the way he always is speaking up and going first and all of that. But is he old? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because, by the way, in the Galilee, the average age, lifespan, for a person in the Galilee is 40 years old at the time of Jesus. So when we have him 65, 85, I'm sorry, I don't know, um, whatever it may be, just kind of bumbling along, what? That's uh, a little goofy. Uh, and still unclear of Jesus in his kind of auburn hair, white. Huh. Anyways, the brief story, this brief story, is about the abuse of power. And it's about gaining status by buying into the broken system. Oh, we'll pay that tax. In fact, here's a little bit more. Could I have a gold cluster put on the sanctuary? What defines then, it raises the question, what defines significance, importance, or greatness? Which moves us into the next part of the text rather seamlessly. Matthew chapter 18, we move to then. At that time, this time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then, in light of this, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who? Because if it's not about buying status and having gold adorned in our name around the sanctuary, who then is great? What is greatness? We want to know because we want to be the greatest. We began with a brief story about a tax system that determines a hierarchy of payment and societal importance. A system Jesus thinks is rubbish, now which makes more sense of why the disciples are asking, what's greatness? How does it work in the kingdom of heaven? If it's not about wealth and power and hierarchical influence, how does it work, Jesus? He responds this way, verse 2. He called a little child whom he placed among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes a what? Humble place, becoming like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name, that's in my reputation, on my behalf, welcomes me. Such a poignant and crucial glimpse into how the kingdom of heaven is to be understood. Are you with me? In the ancient world, here's the thing. Children were often viewed as only half of a human until they hit puberty. Then, depending on whether the child was male or female, then uh, they were viewed as being able to marry and give birth or they were of age to take over the family business. The boy would at that point. Case in point, the Greek word for child here is paidon. Go ahead and say paidon. It's a neutral term. Neutral term for a half-grown child. In other words, how you would say it, it's an it. That's the word used here. That's how they referred to kids, it, until then. 
It's a neutral term. It's really fascinating. It's a, a way of referring to kids. Now, N.T. Wright helps us out with this to kind of make sense of what's odd saying. I have guessed that it, N.T. Wright said, was a girl. Not least because a girl would make with special clarity the point Jesus was wanting to get into the disciples' minds that the weakest, most vulnerable, least significant human being you can think of is the clearest possible signpost to what the kingdom of God is to be like. God's kingdom, the future time when heaven rules on earth, won't be about the survival of the fittest. It won't be the result of some long evolutionary process in which the strongest, the fastest, the loudest, the angriest people get to the front ahead of everyone else. Oh. Yes! For the disciples, it's likely they would have in mind big, strong heroes of their past in the mind of like, this is greatness in the kingdom of heaven. You know, the great warrior King David. That's a hero. That's the greatest. And Jesus flips all of that thinking on its head and offers the picture of one of the least valued people in their society, children. The question of who is the greatest is inappropriate because it seeks status. So Jesus answers with clarity in placing before them a child, one who would represent those without power and who are dependent on their parents and their insula. Insula is a word for like their wider family and their village. Our village, this is my family. This is who serves with me, but this is who helps me. And so I don't have power without my family and without the insula. So he pulls that person before them and says this, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's naming one of the clearest characteristics of people in the kingdom of heaven, humility. Humility. Humility welcomes rather than hindering people from participating in the kingdom of heaven. Humility says, oh, yeah. Because it's not. Humility is not rooted in comparing or competing. And what Jesus begins here, the Apostle Paul will later amplify by rewriting the day's dominant code for how you lived. Contextually, the dominant way of thinking in the Greco-Roman world was referred to as the household code. Anyone hear of a household code? The dominant code was authored by the Greek philosopher Aristotle in the 4th century BCE. Several, so they were talking a few hundred years before Jesus even. And he pens this, or however you do that, hundreds of years before, it became known as this is how the household would be viewed and operated leading into the time of Jesus. The ancient Greeks saw the household as the primary institution through which order was kept in society. To promote effective household management, Greek sages offered their advice to the paterfamilias, to the man on household management. Aristotle's instructions are recorded in book one of his writing, Politics. It's an eight-volume writing. In book one, he writes this, which uh, a few hundred years again before this, so think a few hundred years for this to saturate and dominate the culture of that day. This was the way in which you ran the household in your community before Jesus and Paul. So what I want to do is just read a snippet of it so you can get 
a, a bit because we can't read the whole household code. It's long, but I want to give you a snippet of a Aristotle's household code, the dominant code, and see if you pick up on anything that seems kind of, huh. The male is by nature superior. So it begins. And the female inferior. And the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. That's it? We're just sticking there. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal one. So when we get to language, he's the king of the castle. Where'd that come from? Ding, ding, ding. Oh, interesting. Whoopsie. Um, the rule over his children being a royal, over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. When one rules and the other is ruled, we endeavor to create a difference of outward forms and names and titles of respect. The relation of the male to the female is of this kind, but there the inequality is permanent. The rule of a father over his children is royal, for he receives both love and the respect due to age, exercising a kind of royal power. All classes must be deemed to have their special attributes. As the poet says of women, by the way, Greek ancient poet says this, silence is a woman's glory. If ever you have heard that and then said that's that the church, uh, no, Greek philosophy from well before the time of Jesus, thank you very much. But this is not equally the glory of a man. The child is imperfect and therefore obviously his virtue is not relative to himself alone, but to the perfect man and to his teacher, and in like manner the virtue of the slave is relative to his master. How are we doing? Jesus, in the face of that dominant way of thinking, places a child in front of him and says to his disciples, this is a picture of greatness. And he says, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then, about 25 to 30 years after this, the Apostle Paul will completely rewrite the code in his letters to the church in Ephesus and Colossae. Ephesians 4, 17 begins this way. So I tell you this, church, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, those Roman pagans do, in the futility of their thinking that have this in mind. Submit to one another, church, out of reverence, respect for Christ, all of you. Wives to your own husbands. In the Greek, the word submit's not there because you have to go and find it at the verse before it that says, what is the wife to do? Nothing different than what the rest of the church is supposed to do. Submit to your own husbands out of respect as you do to the Lord. A couple of really important pieces as we read this because can still find funny to us. Paul says that the body of Christ, we are to live in mutual submission to one another out of reverence or respect for Christ. Then Paul addresses wives directly. You don't do that. You don't speak to women or kids. You just tell paterfamilias, here are the rules, tell your people. Instead, Paul addresses women and he does so first. 
then, then providing the highest respect and honor by doing so, sadly, sadly then there are doctrines and churches that ignore the context of this and simply siphon the word submit and handcuff wives with it. Plus, wives are not asked to do anything different than what the rest of everyone else in the church is called to do. There's, of course, much more here, uh, but we're not sticking with that this morning. Go ahead and get me coffee sometime, or I'll get you coffee, and we can talk about it for a year. Uh, But we'll stick with the point of humility through children. Paul will go on to instruct husbands to love their wives as Christ loves his bride, the church. Next, in Ephesians 6.1, he says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, Paul uses a different Greek word for children here. The word is technon. It's used with affection for student or disciple of a teacher. What Paul did is he changed the word and said, when we speak of kids, we're talking of students, learners. We're going to give honor and respect to kids and address kids directly now too. Are you with me? Good, beautiful. It's brilliant. Paul is turning the whole system on its head through the way he's giving respect and honor to wives, children, and then after this, slaves. Paul is even more succinct in his letter to the church in Colossae. It says this, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Although the language certainly should still sound crusty to us, Paul once again begins by directly addressing wives, then husbands, kids, and slaves. Although they had a long way to go, as we do today, correct? This was a massive leap forward in its day. And in fact, one that would probably get you arrested, put in prison, and eventually you'd probably be killed because you are subverting a whole household code of its day which Paul does. That'll probably get you in trouble with the Roman Empire. Now, that just gives us our frame for context. Back to Jesus and his students and what this whole thing is because Jesus is going to take it up a few notches. Ready? Matthew 18, 6 through 9. If anyone causes one of these little ones here in front of me, those who trust in me, he's now equating that faith in Christ to be like a child. It would be better if you cause them to stumble. For them, if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. <laughs> Woe to the world. Please circle that. We're going to come back to that. Because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Wow! This is amplified hyperbole. That's really important to know. But Jesus is bringing very serious tone to what it is to when you cause those to stumble. He's heightening the seriousness and honoring the value of all people in their quest to walk in the kingdom of heaven. Now, why this is important, I was listening to a podcast with a therapist who was sharing stories of people who are new to the church, brand new, haven't been in church, and they're new to the church, and they, um, they were taught the Bible with strict literalism. 
And why I tell you this is there was one woman on the floor of her bathroom, eyeball in hand, after gouging it out because she did a double look at a guy at her workplace, came home and popped her eye out. Because they were taught, this is what it says, better to have one eye than to lust. As if lust is a visual problem rather than a heart problem. Are you with me? It's real. That's why we have to pay attention to context and everything else. Jesus is simply trying to drive home the importance of humility, a posture of endlessly learning the heart. Because Jesus knows that when his students take seriously the posture of humility, it will lead to how we value others on their journey in seeking that which is deepest within, in seeking the Christ. Matthew 18, 10 through 14. See uh, that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Very personal dimension to it. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, now he launches into a parable, and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go for that one wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. The value is for every single person. And humility forges within us a posture of curiosity and compassion for other people's story. And in verse 7, that language, woe to the world, it's not about planet Earth. I hope when you read that and you're like, well, that sounds weird. As compared to, you know, some other planet or place called heaven, the Greek word for world here is the root word kamizo. Go ahead and say kamizo. The arrangement or constitution of government for taking care of. Jesus says here, woe to the arrangements or constitutions of government that care for others above others. <laughs> I'll let that sit. Woe, that's what he says here. Woe to those systems that are set up to value some and not others. There are systems and structures that only value some people or they place a dramatic hierarchy of value that benefits the few while being brutal on the many. And Jesus addresses it right here. And Jesus says, woe to those who claim to be his followers to walk the way of the kingdom of heaven but live by and hold to these dysfunctional systems and structures. Any relevance for us today? I think the proper response is, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. It is for me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In studying this, ooh, did I spend some time just crying. Oh my goodness, Jesus. You did it. You went there. You called it. It's not difficult to feel burdened, buried under systems and voices that are deafening in the noise of comparison and competition. The dominant operating systems of our society tell us that who we are is determined by how we compare to or compete against the person standing next to us. Are you smarter, stronger, better looking, wealthier than the person next to you? Are you an influencer on social media? What's your platform? How thick is your resume? How many degrees do you have? What's your job title? At what establishments do you have a membership? 
your clothes, makeup, selfies, because, come on, you got to build your brand or, or else. Are you with me? In rather dramatic and emphatic fashion, Jesus says that humility and simplicity, two of the greatest characteristics, and if you say greatest, two really important, two characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. Humility, simplicity are central ingredients baked into those living as children of the divine. Which raises some questions for us today. Uh, is humility what comes to mind for most people when they think of the church today? Just, we're going to sit with these. Is welcome, hospitality, and generosity toward others how people speak of the church today? Is the simplicity of love the engine that drives and describes the church today? My hope, why we exist as a community is because I want to see those answers turn toward a buoyant and boisterous yes. Two things for us to reflect on. First, we get to celebrate the baptism of six, at least six kids today for Walker Harbor. An opportunity for us to invite the beautiful and brilliant faith of these kids to be our teacher. To honor them, celebrate them, and continue to walk with them as they grow in God. Secondly, can I invite us all to stand and say a, an ancient prayer together of simplicity, of loving God and loving our neighbor? We're going to start in the Hebrew, if you're looking on screen, I'm like, uh-oh. We'll start in the Hebrew, we'll say the, the, the Shema as it's known. The hear, O Israel, Shema means hear or listen and obey. And we'll say this in Hebrew uh, together, you can repeat after me, and then we'll say it in English together as a community with the hope, the desire to live into this, that we would do with everything we are, love God, love our neighbor. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ichad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha. Bechol levavka uvechol nafshika uvechol meodecha ve'ahavta le'reacha kamocha amin. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. With that swirling within us, I want to create some space to write out some confessions. So there will be cards, and if you want, again, just note cards, what I would love for us to do is, it's not handing them in, you don't put your name on them, you don't have to do that, but I think it's really, really important in this that we write out some confessions if the church is not first and foremost thought of in humble, simple, love, generosity ways. 
What is in the way? What barriers have we constructed to get in the way of that posture? I find it helpful to name the things that get in the way of me being all that was Christ has called me to be. So individually and collectively, it's important for us to do so as well. Reflect on that as we sing, or as at least music is being played, we'll just create some space for you to write out some confessions. What is it that gets in the way? And then if you want, again, you're not putting names on them, but if you want to come and just put your confessions in this bin, put them out there. Uh, it's good for us, though, also to acknowledge them. We won't do that publicly, but for, for us as a staff to say, what is it that the church, how are we even recognizing? What are some ways and things that are in the way? of us being all that we are created to be, but certainly the church as a whole, what gets in the way of us being seen, viewed, known as humble, loving, simple in our love God and love of neighbor. This is a confession, which is a move towards repentance. Teshuva is the Hebrew word, which simply means to turn or return to God. It's a movement of, man, we've lived this way, we've acted this way, we've done this thing, and I need to turn from that because this is not the way. And I want to return to God or turn from this and turn back to the path of God. And to do that, we have to own it. We have to own it. So write out, what gets in the way? What gets in the way? Then we'll take some time and do that. Uh, and then we'll come back for a time of benediction.
for us and for you this morning um, to, to be able to spend some time uh, blessing our kids and uh, our school employees, uh, educators, that we could do that, uh, but also that we could sink in and be students and listen um, to what Christ is doing in us, speaking to us, and wanting to do through us. Because it's my hope and prayer that we, we have the choice. We are the church. 
You and I together are the church. We have the choice to choose the ways of Christ and to live in them more and more as an act of worship to God. And when we do that, it is good news. I trust that it's good news for our lives and certainly good news for the lives of those who interact with us. I was struck as I was standing here and just allowing time to just sit for a second, even pause, as soon as I got done speaking, what was, what was hitting my heart, confession, I'll just tell you because you're my people. I admire those who are humble, but I have a tendency to envy those with power, status, and platform. To me, what was going through, move from word to flesh. Move from admiration to partnership and learning and growing in that way. For me, I want to go beyond just ad admiration of humility and learning to walk in that way. And that, that's hard. You're not going to go around and find people who are humble by asking them because people who are humble won't tell you they're humble. You, you have to see it, discern it. And then maybe, oh God, can, you just, can I just walk with you? Can you listen? That gets in the way for me. I pray, I trust that this church can participate in the wider church of rewriting the narrative of what has sadly happened. That we would live as good news to our world. That we would live the good news of Jesus the Christ for all that we come in contact with all those people. This starts with our hearts being transformed when we come to Christ like a child. Humility, simplicity, hunger to learn, curiosity to grow in the ways of Jesus. May you, church, may you have hearts to understand the ways of the kingdom of God. May you have ears to hear and discerning minds and hearts to walk in the ways of Christ that a world would see the church as good news, as benevolence, generosity, love, first and foremost. May you absorb it and then move from word heard to flesh lived. And may you, through the grace and peace of Christ empowering you, may you live that, that a world would see the goodness of God. Grace and peace be yours, and I hope you can enjoy me in celebrating our kids and more this afternoon. Grace and peace to you all.